My guest today has written for the Daily Mail, the Times, the Independent, the Scotsman, Business AM, Financial Times and Reuters amongst many others. He has covered the UK economy, the banking crisis, multi-million pound takeover battles, disruptive technologies and the personalities that shape global business. He has produced hundreds of in-depth interviews featuring leaders from the Bank of England, Barclays, Tesco's, Virgin, General Electric, Nestle, Huawei, Anglo-American and WeWork amongst many others. He's also the author of The Nine Types of Leaders. James Ashton, you're very welcome to the podcast. Paul, thanks so much. That was an incredible introduction. You're most welcome, and it's a fascinating actually. What reading your uh, your 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 bio in terms of the, what fascinates me most is as a journalist, as a writer, is the people you get to meet, and I guess part of the book is categorizing those leaders you've spoken to into different archetypes. And I'd like to start off first of all, ask you what prompted you to write the book. Well, um. Paul, so my background, yes, you've, you've listed all those uh, newspapers. It does feel like I've, I've been um, uh, uh, kind of going up and down what, what would have been Fleet Street over many years. And, and you're right, you know, I've done a lot of those CEO interviews over my time. It's always been business journalism. And I've always been interested in in the the economics and these macro um, indicators. I'm interested in in obviously the profit line. But what's really got my um, my attention over the years is who are the people? Who are the people that have got to the top of these organisations? How do they get there? How do they stay there? What what makes them tick? What are their methods, their motivations, and and so on? So when I left the Evening Standard in 2015, I've worked for myself now for a little over five years. There were lots of different things I, I wanted to do, and and one of them was to um, come up with a book and I had in my ears a um, piece of advice from many years ago from an old editor who, who said James write what you know uh, and that seemed to me like a, a great starting point a bit of obvious piece of advice just um, just don't don't you know strain at the edges stick with with what you've got and I thought well I suppose my currency over the years has been all of these CEOs now what can I do what can I add to this sea of leadership um, that is absolutely full of, of, of brilliant people and maybe some not so brilliant people, I don't know, but a lot of people talk and, and write about leadership. And I thought, well, I can't write an academic book. There's a lot of greater minds than mine who've produced something like that. I thought, I want to write something really, really journalistic. It's got to be a good read. It's got to be nice and colourful. And using the prism of, in most cases, using the prism of that um, CEO interview, which might be 45 minutes to an hour, sat together in the room. It's almost a joust, if you like, across the table. Um, the, the, the advisor will generally have made it as bland as possible. Everything in the room will be beige apart from the, the couple of individuals and so on. So what can I take from all of those meetings over the years and a lot of other relationships I've built up? And, and how can I add to the, the, the combined knowledge on leadership? And I thought, uh, I thought about types. One of the joy for me of doing an interview, it's kind of a three-stage process, before, during and after. And the, the during is that joust. It's the, it's the conversation. I never like to waste a CEO's time. So I'm going to be, um, uh, that's where stage one comes in. I'm going to be really well-researched when I go into that room. I need to know all about the current challenges of the organization they're leading, but I will really have had a good look at their CV. Where have they come from? What were the job moves? Why is there six months missing in 2005? What were they doing? 
Um, how did they meet their wife or husband? The, the, the real indicators that help you know how they tick. And one thing that came to me a while ago, this is where the first chapter came from, or, or the first type that I found, was actually sellers, which is very relevant to your um, listenership, I think. So many people I was interviewing had spent their formative years at Procter & Gamble. And I had this question in my mind, what was it that they were doing or what was it that P&G were doing that meant if you were selling soap powder or fragrance in your 20s, by the time you're in your late 40s and 50s, your CEO material? So uh, that became a group. That became the first of my corporate happy families, if you like. And I sort of added and added onto that. So there's some in the book that you would be familiar with, like... Um, uh, founders and alphas and so on and then some that are a little bit more of my um, invention it's my taxonomy so lovers and, and diplomats and I got to nine and I thought there's the waterfront I tested this out with a few CEO friends and, and my agent and others and it seemed like it hold, uh, held water and then um, we were off to the races okay we'll get to the nine types and that's there's the book right now and we'll, we'll, we'll talk through them and what you learned about leadership in general from that. What I would like to do before we get there is maybe go back a little bit further in time and talk about James. What I'd love to know what even got you into journalism in the first place. Was there a moment you woke up and said, I want to work in Fleet Street? Was it just something you saw an ad and you said, I'd go for that? What got you there? Yeah, well, um, I was, um, what would I say? I think the first moment there was a competition. I'm from West Yorkshire. I was born in a small town near Huddersfield. Um, and there was a competition in the local paper, the Huddersfield you Daily. Have, you've lost the accent, can I say, James? Well, I mean, I always say, I mean, you know, after a couple of pints of lager or whatever, or, or, or bitter, if, if you're in the right part of the country, it would come back. Um, but for the purposes of today, I've got my Sunday accent on. Yeah. Um, so uh, the Huddersfield Examiner ran a competition called Junior Journalist Competition. It's a really easy competition for a newspaper to run. They printed a, a blank grid uh, of a mini version of their newspaper. And effectively, the challenge to, to, to kids was fill it, fill it with your stories, fill it with your ideas. And um, so I did that as an individual entrant. I did that also as a um, as we did it through um, through school. We've always been a, um, a newspaper heavy family. You know, my dad, I would say, has a has a has a two newspaper a day habit, and and spent a couple of his formative years working working for the paper as well. But gave up because he, he it clashed with his um, with his football playing. He didn't want to work at the the weekends and so on. So newspapers has always been something I've been around, and I think actually finding things out, asking questions, being curious, some would say nosy, is just something that I've always um, I've always had in me. So I suppose from the examiner. Um, I took that to university with me at St Andrews in Scotland. I was, um, I don't know, I must have spent as much time on the paper, I think, as I did doing my English degree. And it was a real buzz. Uh, you know, it's, it still is a real buzz, getting a byline, getting my name in the paper um, on top of a story, preferably on the front page uh, or, or wherever. So I did that for, I mean, I was editor of the, the Chronicle, as was then, and um and it seemed obvious that the next step after that was, how do I turn this into a career? So I went to London then and um, City University do a very good one-year postgraduate uh, diploma, which teaches you um, lots of things that you, you feel you don't want to know when shorthand is at nine o'clock Monday to Friday. 
and uh, and lots of things you didn't need to know. I, I would call them soft skills and the network and actually getting yourself into into the industry. You know, City and Cardiff, the other main training course at postgrad level, I would say, are great. Um, they're 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 happy hunting grounds for the media. Um, uh, so it was it was good to get off from there. And then and then business business is almost a happy accident, if you like. My first job was at Reuters. Um, uh, writing about things like advertising and and um, marketing, and so when I left Reuters, it became financial journalism. After that, and I I really don't think some people are would would be a bit turned off by financial journalism. There's there's too many numbers, too many ratios. It's it's quite heavy going. And actually, I think as I as I say in the book, you know, I think um, if you're a political writer you're looking at uh, these figures, these MPs, um, heads of state, etc. If you're a sports writer, you want to be talking to the, the, the top athletes and the, and the very, very successful managers. And I think for business, it's, it's always about, these are things that affect us perhaps more so than, than a successful sports team. Um, it's about um, personality and uh, performance and how these people lead organizations that we all own through our pension funds that employ uh, hundreds of thousands of people in, in some instances. So um, it's it's still fascinates me to this day. Mm-hmm. I'm also curious, uh, James, that a lot of sales leaders, great ones, are really good storytellers. And clearly, through your career, you've been a great storyteller. What have you learned about storytelling in terms of what what are the most important elements of it that allowed you to be successful in your own career, but then also allowed you to tell the stories of the people you've interviewed for the nine types of leaders? So I suppose you're curious about how, so how am I putting together the articles that I've done over the time and how's that fed into the book? Yeah, yeah. structure, what's important, the importance of headline versus co- uh, content. Well, I think that the the importance of things like you know headline. I think the to some degree some of those um, some of those signifiers on the page. Really, that's been remade as we're reading much more um, on screen and on iPad uh, and so on. I, th- I think from the point of view of the story, if I'm looking to do a really good profile interview of a leader, and I always think. Um, there's a finite amount of space for these. So I always, either with with the ones I'm writing and selling into the Telegraph in the UK or whoever, um, or the ones that I read, I always think, does this person justify the space? So I'm critical of the ones that I would do, and so I have a certain level, and I'm also critical of, of, of the ones I read. I'm looking for, so typically you've got maybe 1,300 words on the page and what we call furniture, so you've got the panel, um, what's your favorite car? What did you earn last year? Tell me about your family, all those sorts of bits and pieces, which I think are really good and really um, revealing. So typically, I think if you're looking to tell a story, um, you don't want uh, reams and reams of corporate speak uh, because no one's interested. It presents you as just a, a, a you know, a, a corporate robot and so on. I think you need a balance between the organization and the person. And it's pretty much a 50-50 balance. Um, and so I'm looking to really dig into um, how they got there, what the moments of where, where the light bulbs moment, moments were, where they got lucky, those sorts of things, and how it resonates with their with their current role. So a good example: last year I interviewed um, 
Charles Stewart, so he runs Sotheby's now, and he was an investment banker. He was brought in to run Sotheby's. And by, by digging back through the things he'd done, I really liked the idea of contrasting, you know, 10, 20 years ago, he, he was selling um, Brazilian telecoms assets uh, as, as they helped to privatise the, the Brazilian phone network. Fast forward to today, and he's overseeing this organisation that's selling Francis Bacon's and all these wonderful um, fine art things. So I suppose I'm looking for I'm looking for the great three pars at the top, the really really colourful intro. It's going to say to a reader, "This is interesting. You could you could devote uh, you know five ten minutes of your of your time to this. You'll find this uh, this person. I've, we've made this person interesting. Um, he might, I'm sure he and of course he was anyway. So I think that's that's what I'm uh, that's what I'm looking for. The challenge with the and 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 so so and some of those things are not um, they're not automatically obvious because the way in which a CEO or a business leader has been prepared for that conversation, um, they will they'll have been prepared to death on making sure they've got their explanation right as to why last year's profit warning happened or the little legal difficulty they've got into and so on. Um, they are less likely to have been prepared um, for the question about their career from 15 years ago but i think if you if you look back at how any interviewer operates those are the things you've got to do and i think those it's um, an interviewee needs to be ready with those moments of self-reflection because that's the that's the interesting stuff um and with the with the with the sales people the sales and marketing people because i have this this so this chapter called sellers um i'm not sure if they're necessarily uh great raconteurs i think they are very good communicators though i think they have a real sense of self-awareness um, i think they have a sense of what's interesting and what's not and i think sometimes these leaders that have come up through different functions um, are a little less media savvy i could say mm. let's talk then about the 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 types themselves uh that you have nine listed your fixtures alphas Lovers, campaigners, sellers, humans, scions, diplomats, founders, uh, yeah, and founders, that's the nine. I I'm curious to know if there's an overlap. I, I know you said that the, the, you started with sellers, that was a sort of self-selecting group of people, and then you had your own view in terms of how you would categorize others, and they just seem to fall into these natural boxes, if you like, but I, I can imagine that there must be leakage between those because Okay, can you be a seller and a human? From how you describe it, I would hope so. Or a scion and an alpha. What are your What are your thoughts in terms of how fixed these categories are, or is it just it was it was just useful way of documenting them? Well, I think there are good examples in each chapter of of what you might call the pure bloods, and I think there are um, good strong examples, particularly say. Um, uh, think of a category like the fixers. Now, depending on the um, depending on the vintage of the of the listener or the viewer, the, the fixer I describe as the red adair of business. These are the leaders who will race into the burning corporation. Um, they'll do that hundred year program. They will save it for a um, hundred day program. They'll save it for the shareholder, for the customer, wh whoever. Now, I think um, once you've got that playbook. Once a fixer, always a fixer. I think you are only you have your sleeves permanently rolled up. I think you are always going to be um, drawn into those 
basket case situations and I think they can be very very rewarding so but I do say early on in the book Paul that I think there are there are good um single category examples of which I which I've got a lot but I think yes absolutely there is a there is a bit of mix and match there's also this point that I think I think leaders like to think they can be very very versatile and keep learning and develop during their career and I think that is true to a certain extent I'm not sure they're as versatile as they think they are and in most instances you can you can draw back I mean I think in the in the in the in the sellers, for example, you can you can pull back to things that have been picked up very early in in their career that they keep going back to and the the, the toolkit that they um, that they keep using. But yeah, you can have you can have the overlap, and I think particularly the um, the humans, which is my ninth type, uh, is the last chapter, and I think they are there's some strands in there I've tried to collect together from from the other eight. I think they're quite magpie like in they they've taken the best of. Humans and campaigners are probably the aspirational types. I don't think many people would want to be an alpha, but actually an alpha can be very, very effective in, in a lot of situations. And that, well, they're all over Silicon Valley, aren't they? Yeah, and, and that, that was strange to me because alpha as a type versus, well, there's a lot of alpha personalities in the business world and they, can, they, they come from many different places. But your, your description of alphas to me was more of a categorization of old school hierarchical domineering type structure rather than an individual who may be may have alpha tendencies would that be fair categorization well yes but i think they would have i think the uh, another thing that another thing that's that's typical for alpha alphas can be um can be longevity so i think someone like uh uh, Peter Brabeck, who I write about from Nestle. I mean, he, he he put in fifty years at that company, and I think I think they are. I think there's an interesting counter counterpoint between alphas and, and founders. There's the similar. There's a similar sort of um, power base, if you like, to them. I mean, obviously, founders are there right at the start. They're at the kitchen table with the um, with with the plan they they've written out. Whereas alphas are, even though they are very very long service, typically they are um, the hired help. But I think the the structures and the hierarchy are, su- are such that um, they very very probably assembled them exactly how they wanted them. Yeah. If you take, um, what was I going to say? Yes, I know what I was going to say. You said that you you do a lot of research before you interview the CEOs. Um, for how many of the percentage wise of them would you have a really strong sense before you interview them from your research what category what type of leader they were and if that was something that you had a strong sense of did the interview ever get to change your perception of them it's interesting because i've done so so just to rewind i mean the way, so the the way i laid up the book if you like i i i did the the piece of work which which got me to these nine different groups and then i to to try and test the theory i try to populate them with ceos i've known and particularly the ones i've interviewed and 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 for print uh, there's probably uh best part of 350 i've done so there's there's some to slot into to each category um and i went back to 
those that I knew fitted in certain categories where I needed to dive a little bit deeper. So a good example is Moya Green, who came in to run the Royal Mail um, in the UK in about 2010, an absolute fixer. And, and she took me through the, the moment. Um, she hadn't even found a house to live in. She was still in a hotel. And I think going into a bank holiday weekend, she realised that um, th- there was going to be no money by Tuesday or something. So it's a lovely say lovely not lovely at the time but it's a lovely story and I think it's quite evocative and ditto I went back to Gavin Patterson who was running B, uh, BT because of his P&G background I, I very much see him as a seller and he and he's showing that all over again now as a chief revenue officer at, at Salesforce so I went back to them and then there's been, there, there were new ones I added on top where I knew I needed to broaden out a category and, and, and diversify and internationalize and people like RJ Banger from MasterCard, who I see as a, a, a really great example of a, of a campaigner. But actually going into, I didn't have this taxonomy when I did most of these interviews, if you like, when I did them over many, many years. So I've only read in a handful with this, uh, with, with, with the nine in my head. Um, and the most recent in fact, only one since publication, because forgive me, Paul, I have spent a long time, a lot of time promoting the book instead of writing in the last few weeks. It's been a very um, in- interesting time. But I interviewed um, the CEO of uh, the Royal Mint, Anne Jessup, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And what drew me to her, it, she is the first female leader of this 1100-year institution. For some reason, Henry VIII um, wasn't into diversity. Um, uh, and, and none of the none of the monarchs or chairmen have have since until a couple of years ago, but I went into that conversation thinking that Anne would slot into the human category, and I'd like to think that was right. And what really led me to her, as well as leading this really interesting brand, was she came up through the human resources uh, function, and I'd never interviewed a, a CEO like that before. So really interesting, in, interesting to me as to how. Um, why it was why it was her turn, if you like, and the and the sellers and marketers th- that form the, the sellers chapter is, is almost a if that felt like a generational shift. If you went back to the sixties or seventies, other than the big uh, computing hardware f- industries and, and possibly pharmaceuticals, you didn't really have the sales and marketing people punching through. And I wonder now if we're in a time where we need to really broaden out. Diversity and credibility of leadership. We're getting HR people coming through. We're getting PR people coming through. So that that's that's interesting. Sorry, that was a very long answer, but yeah. So she she's the only one I've tried since the book. Yeah, and she worked. Yeah, and and all the people you've interviewed, who surprised you the most, and what was it about them that surprised you? Ah, oh, surprising. Um... I'm struggling to pick out a a, a, a specific. Um, I mean, I can pick out some wonderfully fun um, interviews. Uh, I think I'm in. I'm into when I said to an interview. I'm into the who and the what. So the who is, let's just get the big name. Um, so how can I get the governor of the Bank of England? How can I get Richard Branson? And then the the challenge is getting in the room there. And I think. At that point, the what they say it it almost matters less because you know you've you've got a Branson or a Carney, so it, it it's fine. Um, but I, and then there's also the what actually what what they're going to um, to talk about. Sometimes going into interviews, I think with with American CEOs in particular, because I think they're they speak in a different way. I think they expect different things from the media. I have quite a, I can have quite a low expectation of what to get out of them 
it you might think this is going to oh this is going to be just a load of uh, corporate uh, speech this is going to be a hard write up so i think the um the americans who really deliver are um great fun and the ones who were uh, yeah the, the the ones who are happy to 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 speak freely i mean um you know a few years ago i, I was in new york to interview adam newman who was running wework and um there is something I, I quite like a leader where there's something a bit messianic about them. Um, I think it makes good copy. Mm. I'm not. I think always trying to be the messiah is quite a thing to um, to. Uh, it, it's quite a high ambition to live up to, uh, but it certainly makes for a for a, a good interview. And um, and then I think some of the fun ones. I love. Uh, I love people who've. Uh, I love people who've been around a bit. Um, you know, the people who, um, mm. so someone like Donald Bryden, who um, I interviewed a few years ago, uh, he, he was chair of the, the Royal Mail that, that recruited Moya Green. Um, he's been uh, big in asset management, involved in lots of um, uh, the stock exchange. He's been on the board of that twice. And just someone who can, you know, you can, you, you can do a very, very superficial interview and say, well, what's all this about your latest review of the audit market, Donald? Or you can say, well, hold on, you were involved in this audit review 25 years ago, Donald. Why is this one going to stick any more than the last one didn't? Um, and, and so on. And you can really, there's, I think you need someone older to be able to get the benefits of echoes of history out of them. I, I'm interested, if you don't mind, to go back to Adam Newton for a moment. Newman, sorry. Um, yep. Because a lot of people who would watch this, many of them have companies who work out of WeWork offices. And anything I've read about the man, I, I don't know that I'd categorize him as a leader. I know he led an, an organization, I get that. But in terms of somebody, I would want people close to me following as an exemplar of what great leadership is. I don't know from what I know about him, I would categorize him that way. Um, I'd love to know what you learned about the man. Is, it, is, is he as characterized in, in the mainstream media? You mentioned you used the word messianic, which I thought was an interesting word, uh, because he, he certainly, from what you read, is that he was—he's this founder who had this great idea, but very much a maverick, and not somebody who's going to, to run an organization, a sustainable leader, if you like, who's going to be there for the long term. Which has proven correct, but that may be for different reasons. And I, I really wanted to get your take on on on, on what your expectations were and. Were they challenged in any way by your by your interview? Um, I I was really pleased. Uh, I mean, I, I think I got a lot of good stuff out of him. He he, we, we really. Um, I mean, this was the time. This was before they obviously he was still running the company. This is when they before they'd filed for IPO, and it was it was a it was a one to watch, and we really talked through the um the do the doom mongers the sort of pessimists would say well this is a this is just a ludicrous valuation for for uh for what is a sort of regis on wheels or something and um and his his answer to that was there i didn't necessarily buy all the this is a whole new lifestyle um thing because uh you know a serviced office is is a serviced office but but i think his what really interested me was um, this is a this is about what they called an operating system um, that they could uh, 
run these they could they could design and fit out and then run these properties anywhere in the world with a minimal number of people and they could move the walls and move the aircon and and, and that sort of thing and i also was interested in and you know i i don't often make a judgment in the piece and it's it's there in the quote you've got to let the person speak for themselves he was talking about designing cities i think there was a there was something in the interview where he uh he 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 um he likened the company to to building the roman empire which is all you know uh, a, a little a little bit crazy and i think if you a, a lot of leaders would be too cautious about talking um you know talking in those terms obviously but but i think we're in a time where investors and to some degree um employees do want to follow that type of leader now there were excesses there's there's talks about the you know parties and tequila and all and that's why that's widely chronicled but but adam is in the um mm. alpha category and i say that you know this this alpha oh we, we people say we must never see the, the likes of sir philip green again and um and investors want uh focus and consensus and all all these modern things but the alpha has been totally rebooted in silicon valley and actually what what investors want is is good ideas and growth and wealth creation and they are backing a a cadre of alphas uh zuckerberg bezos Newman could have been one. Um, uh, Travis at Uber, you know, they are. Th- some of them are absolutely flawed individuals, but I'm sure you'd find flaws in any of these categories of um, of leadership. Mm. But you you are buying, you're buying the individual and their ideas uh, as much as you are buying the the company. I mean, look at the look at the Jeff Bezos um, mm. record at Amazon. I mean, if if it uh if he'd have left early or or if he'd 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 had a narrower ambition amazon today could be the biggest seller of books in the world fantastic that's all um and people would say that's a wonderful um that's a, that's a wonderful thing not down to the shareholders because they probably would have wanted returns and dividends far far before now but because of the vision of um one man they're into um cloud computing they're into groceries they're into technology hardware and and so on and so on so i think um it's an interesting time on the one hand you do have uh as i say calls for calls for focus and consensus but on the other hand um, investors, uh, there's a huge amount of money out there willing to chase these big um, kind of messianic figures who have a vision and take risk and and some succeed and some fail. I, I guess the question I'm thinking of right now is a two-parter and using uh, Adam Newman as an example was you said you put him in the alpha category and I'm curious first of all is how you do that because he was a founder you could say he had passion so he could fit into the lover category clearly a salesman if he was able to you know get people behind his vision and he was quite hyperbolic in as as you you know if he was building the roman empire uh, mm. he was able to convince and sell to investors so there was any number of categories he could fit into so how do you choose that's the first part and the second part then is put an investor's hat on in deciding who I'm going, what type of leader I want to invest in. Is there one type of leader that 
is more appealing to investors than others? I think why he's in in that category is, um, uh, you know, it's it's writer's privilege. I think, isn't it? I mean, I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call him a seller. I think um, they. You could argue that all of them are um, selling their product, whether it's um, you know Zuckerberg or or Bezos. I mean, typically the sellers I've got in that grouping are the ones that have really benefited from a sales and marketing. Um, grounding and i think they're the ones that um they know their um consumer really well they know their product really well and they they communicate across across the divide so that's where i've got the the unilever gang the procter and gamble gang and 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 you know sydney terrell is in there who um took me through his time uh going into gp surgeries in the 70s before he he, he moved up to to lead eli Lilly for for many many years so I think that that's that's how I just uh, that's how I, I chose him. I think I needed I, I was conscious of this dichotomy of alphas that their um, alphas are being it's almost like whack a mole. Let's they're all dying out in traditional industries. We need we need um, much more balanced leaders. But actually in tech, it really is anything goes. I think it's it's about those um, personalities. Which type of leader do do investors like? Um, well. I mean, I suppose it does depend which investor you talk to. If you talk to an investor who is is um, uh, you know in the ESG brigade, then they would absolutely but want to back a um, a campaigner, and the campaigners I define as those leaders who have really got that balance between profit and purpose, which we talk so much about now. I think. Sorry, what's ESG? Oh, env- environmental, um, sustainable, and, uh, and and governance factors. So it's really the it's. Um, it's kind of where the CSR corporate sustainability responsibility is morphed into. So it's 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 money that's going into um, to funds that uh, I would say funds that do good, not just funds that don't do, not just companies that don't do bad. And I think there is a distinction. So so it's it's the campaigners yeah, are those that can right. take the yeah yeah absolutely re- renewables and um, and so on. They can take the the. They know they need to deliver on the profit imperative, but they also know that the platform they have has got to be about more than serving the um, the investors. And I think that's really been underscored by the pandemic, actually, that that this social contract um, that companies do absolutely do not um, exist um, in, in isolation. They have to relate to their um communities they operate in to suppliers and customers and staff and the best leaders during the pandemic have had a real duty of care so so some investors would would go for that um i think if you were if you're taking a long long-term view what 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 i found interesting in doing the research for the scion chapter um which is kind of my chapter in defense of nepotism if you like um there are really quite good returns to be had from from backing some of these um, companies where you have a large family shareholding, where they they will may typically have the um, the second or third generation, if not leading the company, but certainly on the board. So um, companies there like might be Schroders in in wealth management, um, uh, mild employer D- DMGT Daily Mail uh, Group has effectively been well family controlled for since it floated a century ago. Uh, and so on. So, I think 
I think these canny fund managers have to take their take their pick, Paul. Mm. That's fair. Uh, I'm curious. You mentioned earlier, James. You used the word joust when it came to describing interviews, and uh, what I'm curious about is where you're trying to get to the essence of a leader and understand what motivates them, their traits, their characteristics, their story. They're trying to also portray a particular image. And I'm curious to know if that's what you meant by joust. Was it that that process by which you have to go through to kind of get behind the facade? Uh, Or was it something else that, that you felt it was an appropriate verb? Or adverb. No, I think that I think that's that's about right. I think um, they should come into the room knowing what they want to get over, and um, and I know where I want the conversation to go. So it's it's up to me to um, con- control control. It's, it's quite a hard word, but but uh, get the get the conversation to go where I want it to cover the ground that I want to, and. Um, yeah, I, th- I think there has to be a, a, a lit. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a, a bad tension. Um, I think you can you abs- you can probably ask anything as long as you're smiling, um, which is which is what I uh, try to do. So, yeah, I think th- I think I think as I say in in the early chapter, I'm a real fan of. There are a lot there'll be lots of handlers uh, who who advise people not to engage in that way there's more downside than up but i would say it's absolutely um the the opposite and i think in this era now where we see that communication is is so important i think putting themselves through an interview it is another test it's another test for doing the job it's like a job interview with no role at the end of it and so come and so and and if you want to be an authentic leader if you can be authentic with with a journalist over the course of an hour if you can make me believe you um, then you can probably make your staff believe you and your suppliers believe you and, you know, get it from me rather than the yes men. And because it, and it, it's interesting, as you're interviewing these, if you, list, if you look at the world, a lot of the people who would watch or listen to this podcast inhabit, is they're in a similar boat and they're interviewing people. They're asking questions and they're trying to understand their story and they're trying to get behind the facade and find out what the real issue is, what the where the real challenges are. And then you have somebody else on the other side of that interview, perhaps not wanting to be so vulnerable. And you mentioned that preparation was key. Clearly asking great questions is important. And you, you said something else, which I thought was interesting as well, which was you wore a smile that the style in which you operated within had had a major impact. If you're to look at those three elements of, if you like, being part of the success you are having and getting these people to open up and be, get comfortable, be vulnerable, tell the, tell the real story to a point where you said is they're believable. Is there anything in that that you feel is more important than others? And what I mean by that is like the preparation, the, the, the questions you ask, or the style in which you conduct the interview. I think, I mean, it's, it's not the best answer. I would say it's a, it's a bit of all of them. I think you, I think you can get the, um, you know, there are lots of good journalists out there. The way, the way that they go about getting the next interview um, is, is doing the last one, if you like. I think actually being, um, being 
Uh, and there's, some, there's someone I knew who used to do the weekend interview in one of the papers, and um, she ran out of people to interview uh, because she was too hard. She she uh, she was roughing people up in print every weekend, and therefore she ran out she ran out of subjects. Um, so I think you I think you get points from um, simply asking the question: Are you interested? Can I interview you sometime? That would be great. Uh, I think you I think you get points for turning up knowing what you're talking about. One of the early interviews I did was a, it was a, a terrible format. It was a joint interview, so two journalists, one CEO. Um, I mean, I don't know who, and it was absolutely awful. The other guy started and he said, "What? so what do you do then? And I thought, crikey, this is going to be a long hour. So I think you get a lot um, from being, oh. I think you get an awful lot out of people from being um, civil and from being knowledgeable. And I think as, uh, you know, within a few minutes, in, a few minutes into a, an interview with me, I hope they will know that, you know, I don't, I, if I go into, say, interview, um, the CEO of Tesco. I mean, I and, I and I've got you know busy guy. Uh, so and I've got let's say forty five minutes. I'll, I I think an hour. Sometimes people can get a bit tired, and so I don't need to waste three minutes saying. So what does Tesco do then? Or you know that sort of you know you, you've got. To, I think you've got to be using your time well. Because and, let, and let's face it, if you look at the if you look at a page, if it's if it's if you look at it in those terms, you need eight great quotes probably. So work work at getting them and um, and strip away all the all the some of the corporate waffle. When you think about the nine types of leader, are there any common traits across all or mo- certainly most of the types that you feel when when you observe them, they mark those people out as leaders, regardless of what type of leader they are. I mean, there's a few str- there's a few strands that I pulled together in at the start of the book, which was to try and which was to try and explain how they got there in the first place. And, and obviously, there are questions about when does the skill set come on board? You know, if you're the scion, then you are defined at birth. You know, s- sorry, you're going to have to run this multi-billion-pound enterprise, and uh, you know, you're stuck with it. But what what do what do some of the others do? And um, I mean, there are there are there are a few examples that I've that I've pulled out. Um, it's interesting to me how many of them were entrepreneurial early. So you take a few examples. Uh, you know, Tim Davy, another Procter and Gamble name, also at Pepsi, um, uh, in sales. He was arranging club nights when he was at Cambridge, um, uh, and so did John Vincent, who went on to found Leon. Um, someone like you, inventors who up until very recently was running the Queen's Grocer, Fortnum & Mason. He, he was age 11. He began a bakery business in Edinburgh. So I think that's a sign of, of, of something to come. Um, some of them have, have uh, and I think actually part of their route is is decided by how what I call the talent factories. So McKinsey, Amazon, PwC, Deloitte, P&G, the big recruiters, what they go looking for. And I think one of the things they've gone looking for over the last generation is... Um, they want academic excellence usually, but they also want a bit more. So look at the competitive sports people. Um, look at someone like Claire Gilmartin. Just uh, step back at Trainline, very very good swimmer. So was David Sleeth, uh, who runs Segro, the big warehouse company. Uh, Dido Harding, who's um, 
hitting the headlines with uh, NHS Test and Trace and so on, was was very big into horse racing. So I think those people who have shown focus early on uh, and discipline and, and, a, and a will to win are going to do well later in life, but also are going to be appealing to um, to to the recruiters. And then I think one other on, one other on the, this area, Paul. I think the um, I think the leaders are also those people who have um, scaled their organisation well. They've they've very much used the the hierarchy and the structure around them. So there's a lot of good examples of finding that really senior mentor early on. You know how many chiefs of staff, um, the bag carriers, uh, who end up as the um, end up as the CEO. So. Um, Anders Dalvig, who is now chairing one of the two strands of IKEA, he was personal assistant to uh, Ingvar Kamprad. In fact, there's quite a heritage of, of of people who've carried the founder's bag, doing very well at IKEA. At the stock exchange, London Stock Exchange, David Swimmer was chief of staff to Lloyd Blankfein at, uh, at Goldman Sachs. So I think I think getting real insight into the top of the company early it says that they will they will scale up. Yeah, okay. really interesting. I'm curious because I'm also conscious we're coming up against the time, James. What do you want for the book? I know it's it's always great to write the book and it's there as part of your own legacy. But what's your ambition for the book? Well, I want um, I want people to to read it, enjoy it, discuss it. For me, um, I knew as uh, self-employed as I have been for five years you know I work uh, broadly now across books across a podcast I've got called Leading um, I'm still uh, writing I chair events and speak at a lot of events and I do um, advisory work and I've got uh, non-executive roles so I think no matter how many columns I'd written over the years I think it's very helpful for me to have a, a product like this if you like and um, you know we're we're, we're talking, um, or you talk to a lot of people in sales, and I'm under no illusion. I mean, a book is a great sales tool, and um, I'm selling the book, but I'm also selling myself. So I want this to be um, to be a good jumping off point to um, enhance a lot of the different things that I'm doing. I hope there are more conversations to be had from it, and I can take it out to staff conferences and to other conferences and talk about the findings I've got and the people I've seen. Um, and maybe that leads on to other consulting work or um, or coaching work very very discreetly from and separately from the interviews I do um, I have done um, some media training I never overlap one with the other but um, but there's also been some interest in um, uh, in that as you'd imagine from from coming off the back of this so I yeah I hope it um, it leads on to more conversations and more speaking that's fair that's, that's, I think that's a, a really good ambition for any book. It's a body of work that represents you really well, that people can take a look at and go, okay, I have a sense of their style, their competence, their knowledge, and their abilities. So, uh, as I said, it really represents that well. Uh, was there any particular leader type that you enjoyed writing about more than the others? Um... I enjoyed the um, well. I enjoyed. I've I've always been interested in family businesses. So I think the Scions is is interesting. How you, um, as I say, this chapter is kind of like defense of nepotism because they are they they're born to do it and they have to decide whether they want to first of all. And then I think if you are 
succeeding um, typically your father then you have to decide about at what point are you allowed to hold the reins and I think there are good examples of of generations handing over and very poor examples and then there's this legacy point so to what degree do you stick rigorously by the legacy perhaps the company um, loses its relevance if 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 you do that uh, but you might be, you might keep great aunt Agatha happy because you're delivering the dividend year after year and that's all that's keeping her, her going or to what degree do you go off down you know your own path and in in that chapter um, there's good insight from Jean-Francois Decaux uh, of JC Decaux the outdoor advertising um, company so he replaced his his dad his dad set it up I think in the 60s in France bus shelters um, big billboard poster sites and uh, and so on and there's a wonderful story about the test his his dad set him i think at the time the business was in france and belgium and possibly one other market and his dad had absolutely no ambition to go to germany and he said to jean francois look if you want to join the company just launches in germany um and if you fail um you, you'll still be my son but um the company's not for you and um and and it's it's a lovely story because the, the, there was literally nothing in Germany and, and Jean-Francois spent the first few weeks stood in a call box in, in the centre of Hamburg because he didn't have an office, didn't have a phone and so on. And um, I think I think that's great. And then um, and then I think oh, they have such a unique education because it's at the dinner table from very, very early on. And then mm. they get thrown these challenges. And of course because success for a scion is is a given because you've got the surname so therefore you must you and you've had all this privilege and so on i think the i think it's um it's almost a given that they will succeed and then when they when or if they fail uh, that is very very heavily uh magnified and i think there is there's some lines across to the uh, you know one i really enjoyed as well drawing together the this procter and gamble story how how did Procter and Gamble create this golden generation? I mean, these people now are leading um, Estee Lauder, Ralph Lauren, Levi Strauss, the BBC, and um, so the, the story in there of how they it really is how they went to recruit the, what they saw as the best from the the, the top tier universities in in the UK, and then really handed them a lot of responsibility early on, and didn't really bring in many it was a what's it called the RAF man told me this it's um is it a baseload organization they just bring people at the bottom and promote them I mean P&G is based in Cincinnati but Cincinnati pretty much left the UK to do their own thing in those years they don't now and as a result they they uh, they really thrived you mentioned I wanted to just go back very briefly to yep. the JC Decaux story about the son uh in Berlin making calls on in a, in a telephone kiosk and what what crossed my mind was was the motivating factor for that drive was it more of a a desire to lead a company as is it often you know power and status is often a driving and fear of failure is often a driving force for a lot of leaders mm. was it that or was it more of just wanting to please a alpha more than likely an alpha father mm. Um, I mean, Jean-Francois said, it, and, and quite often, th there there is a pattern whereby um, 
you know, you, you, you don't worry, my child, you will inherit, you will be in the business. Um, but it's good to just, just go out for a year or two and do, uh, and, and, and work elsewhere, work in consulting or, um, you know, work in another organization. Good examples of say Anna Bottin at Santander who worked out before coming back in. And, um, the way the Wallenbergs work in Sweden as well, they will go out for a few years and then come into the business into into Investor AB. So I think uh, Jean-Francois said, look, I could have gone to um, L'Oreal. I could have gone to another company. I think he quite I think he was quite up for the challenge. And I think some of that might have been to to please his dad. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, but I think in that instance, Deco Senior was uh very good and very uh it was all very clean and clear the point at which he handed over to not one but to the it's co-run now by two brothers but there were three brothers in the business one had to launch germany one went to spain and one went to italy um so they're all given that uh, given that challenge he was very good in, in at the moment when he he stepped back they had a takeover offer and um actually it wasn't that it, it was pretty clear what he thought and he said um he said uh by all means you could sell the business but you'll be very bored you'll have lots of money but your wife will probably divorce you so they didn't sell <laughs> or james i could talk to you all day this is fascinating it really is uh i have one final question for you if there was a book written about your life what would the title say Oh, what please. would you want it to say? That's Absolutely. a good one. <laughs> I mean, look, that, I mean, it's, a, it, it's that's one of those awful questions that I would ask at the end of an interview. So I've got to hand it to you, Paul. But I haven't got a, I haven't got a clue. Um, uh, I, 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 what's the answer to that? I don't know. As, um, by the way, that in itself is a good title. I have no clue because that is the creed of the person who is ultimately curious. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I go for that. Although it sounds a bit like a Radio Four program, but uh, but yes, that would that would do that would do for now. I've got a, hopefully got a few years to think about it. Well, if you ever do, if there's ever a book about, yeah, if there's ever a book about your life and it's called I hadn't a clue, I do want to write the foreword. That's the only thing I ask. Of course, absolutely. <laughs> James, it's been a real pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed a uh, conversation today. Thank you so much for being my guest. That's James Ashton, who's author of The Nine Types of Leader, How the Leaders of Tomorrow Can Learn from the Leaders of Today. And that's on Amazon and all good bookstores, and it's available now. Uh, thank you so much again for being my guest today. Thanks so much, Paul. It's been great to talk.